This sermon was preached by Caleb Bunch, head pastor and church planner of Redeeming Grace Fellowship in Massapequa, New York. Redeeming Grace was planted in 2015 and is seeking to reach central Nassau County with the gospel. You can find sermons from this series and many others at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Father in heaven, as we consider this text today, we pray that you would be our teacher. Please help us to be good listeners. Please help us to be good students of the word. But ultimately, Father, we pray that you would teach us not only in our intellect, but Lord, in our spirit, that you would cause us to be more obedient to you. Humble us, God, as you open our eyes more clearly to who you are. We pray that as we come before your word today, Lord, you would make it known to us uh, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And Father, I pray that as we are hearing these words and as I am speaking them, your Holy Spirit would be applying them, that he would be in this place changing hearts and changing minds. And Father, if there is anyone here who does not know you in a saving way, please, Lord, let this be their day of salvation. We pray this in the precious and holy name of Jesus Christ, knowing that you can and do good things. And in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so... Allow me for just a moment to review a little bit of what we've already covered, a few verses that we've seen already in chapter 1 and 2. We're going to look at chapter 1, verse 1, very briefly, and in it it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. At the very beginning of Mark's gospel, right from the start, he tells us that Jesus is equal with God. He tells us that he is equal with God because he is himself The Son of God, he does not keep that secret, he does not try to hide it, he clearly reveals the identity of the Savior. And in doing so, we know that Jesus Christ is equal with the Father in knowledge. He is omniscient, he knows all things. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, if you jump down with me, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The good news of Jesus was coming through teaching. Jesus came as a teacher. His main ministry was not healing. It was not exorcism. The majority of his ministry was to teach. And any time he did these miraculous things, he did so to support what was going on in his teaching ministry. Last time we heard... From Mark, we heard from chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, in, where, in which Jesus heals a paralytic. And in that story, Jesus is teaching, Mark chapter 2, verse 2. That is what is going on in the house. That is what has drawn the crowds. That is why the people are there in the first place. And then when the man is lowered through the roof and Jesus heals him, he does so to point to the power in his teaching, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He turns and heals the man. This is an incredible reality that we need to remember and be reminded of, that Jesus is a teacher. In our text today, in verse 13, it says that what he is doing is teaching them. He's gone out beside the water, a crowd has come to him, and he is once again teaching them. We have some teachers here in the room. Teachers like for their students to learn. They like for their students to to listen. Teachers do not enjoy saying the same thing over and over and over to hear or to see that there's no change. Parents, you love this. You're teachers of your children. Teachers, you love to see this. When a child begins to understand something that they have previously had no concept of, that's amazing. That's enjoyable. As a teacher, we love to see that. We love it when a student who has constantly struggled with a problem can all of a sudden with confidence answer the question. We love to see that as teachers. Jesus is a teacher, and we're going to see over and over and over the frustrating reality that as Jesus is teaching, no one is learning what he has to say. The people do not understand what he is speaking about. They don't get it at all. Uh, Please allow me to, I know this is uh, abnormal to give application in the introduction, but please let me nudge you a little bit right now. I think this is a good place to pause and really think. I can't tell you how much mental power that I have wasted this year on frivolous and meaningless trivialities. I have wasted so much of my mind. And I think that one of the greatest problems 
with the modern church is that people who are true Christians, true Christians that love the Lord with all of their heart and soul and strength, do not love the Lord with all of their mind. That we have done a very poor job of continuing in learning about our King. And Jesus is a teacher. He still teaches us, and He teaches us through the Word of God. Are we being good students of His Word? We live in a time where we have the Bible. We don't know how blessed we are that this is not only legal, but it is printed, it is accessible, you are able to read it. We are blessed, and we can ignore that blessing and leave it sitting on our shelf. Let's be good students of the Word. I encourage you to join me this coming year in 2016 to try to read through the Bible in one year. Maybe you, you, you feel like that's too much of a, of a commitment. It's hard to do that. Um, maybe if you can't start with reading through the Bible in a year, start by saying you'll read the Gospels in three months or the book of Psalms in the month of January. But whatever you do, commit yourself to reading the Scripture because if you don't, you won't read it. If you're anything like me, if you don't have a plan, you won't succeed. So aim high, and if you miss the target, at least you're continuing to study. Love the Lord with all of your mind. Also, I would encourage you to read good books, books that will stretch you, books that will help you in your understanding of who Jesus is and what the Scripture means. Although these books are not the Bible and they are therefore not the inspired Word of God, they can help you in your spiritual walk. And I encourage you to develop a good habit of reading books that will help you. I love candy bars. I love them. I love Snickers. I would eat Snickers all the time. The problem is, if all you ever eat are Snickers, you're going to be a very unhealthy person. Uh, I think that many of us have created habits of reading where we only read the things that are tasty morsels, small uh, sound bites, things that are not truly going to fulfill us. Let's feed ourselves with something that will help us to grow. Let's feed ourselves with the Word of God and with good books. If you would like suggestions on good books that are not the Scripture, that can help you understand the Scripture, please come to me. This week I'm working on a blog post that will go up on our website of 10 books that I would encourage you to consider reading in the following year. If you can't read 10 books, pick one or two and begin small. But I would encourage you, let's be good students of the Word. Jesus teaches. He is a teacher. And now he teaches us through the Bible. So let's do our best to listen. So thank you for allowing me to take a sidestep here. Let's direct our attention back to the text. So far in Mark, we've seen a noticeable build in Mark's presentation of who Jesus is by a noticeable build in his power and authority as he displays his dominion over all things. We've seen Jesus display his authority over temptation. When not only was he tempted, he was tempted in ways that we can't even begin to fathom by the devil himself, and he overcame it. Then we see Jesus casting out a demon of another person, a demon who was incognito, who was not known by the rest of the community. Jesus not only sees it and is aware of it, but he has a power and authority to cast that demon out, and the demon has no power to reject his authority. Then we see Jesus having the power to heal a little fever, a tiny little sickness in Peter's mother-in-law. But even in that same passage, we see that everyone who comes to the house, Jesus, we have a sick person, every one of them was healed. He displays healing over the bodies of individuals. He shows that he has power in the physical world. And then we see Jesus take it a step farther and heal a man who had leprosy. Leprosy, the death sentence of the ancient world. And he heals this man and the man is completely clean. Jesus touches him, and Jesus is not made unclean. We see Jesus have perfect power, and this power is building. The display of his dominion is growing. Not that his power is growing, but the way that it is being presented to the world is greater and greater in scope. And today, we are going to be building on what we saw last week. When we saw it from Mark chapter 2, that Jesus has authority to forgive sins... Everyone is happy about the fact that Jesus forgives the sins of this paralytic man. How bad could he be? Anything that he has ever done that is wrong could probably be blamed on the fact that he has this lifelong, life-threatening injury that he cannot walk. How bad could he be? And so when Jesus forgives that man, everyone rejoices. But today we're going to see a different response because Jesus is going to display that not only does he have the ability to forgive people who the world considers to be pretty much okay, 
He has the ability to forgive sinners who the world deems completely unredeemable. And so, as we look at our text today, we should be in awe of Jesus' growth of dominion as we see that displayed. Again, not that his power itself is, dis- is growing, but the display of it to the world is growing. Today we're going to break up the text into three parts. We'll start with the publican, and then the party, and then the Pharisees. So follow along as I read once again for you. Verse 14. And as he passed by, that is, Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. At face value, this is a very simple verse. There's not a great deal to it. But as you begin to dig a little bit deeper, this is shocking. To the ancient world, this is unbelievable that this event would occur. This is an incredible move on the part of Jesus Christ to call out a tax collector. This tax booth that is being referenced here would be considered similar to what we would see as a toll booth. You know, like on the George Washington Bridge, you cross over and you have the easy pass or you pay the money. And then you are able to cross over into New Jersey. But this is a toll booth. This kind of tax would be collected from people who would travel along this major highway that was a trade route. And if you had trade goods, the person sitting at the tax booth would be able to tell you how much of your goods you had to leave there for him to keep and for him to give to the Roman government. Actually, this money probably would have been given the revenue from it to Herod Antipas. And this person was kind of a puppet king for the Romans who was over this part of Israel. But one of the worst things that you could ever receive, you know this to be true, is the dreaded letter that comes in the mail with those three terrible letters, IRS. Nobody likes taxes. Nobody likes taxes. Everyone hates paying taxes, no matter how much they are or how little they are. So even if these were fair taxes, people aren't going to like this man. But these are not fair taxes. In the year 1996, let me illustrate this way. There was a movie that came out from the pseudo-Christian organization known as VeggieTales. They came out with a Christmas special in which the cucumber sings a song about Santa. And in the song, he is waiting for Santa to come receive cookies. There are three of them. And so he receives a knock on the door, and he opens the door, and it's not Santa. It's a robber. And the robber says, hello, I'm a robber, and I'm here to rob your house. And he says, okay, well, I don't have anything to give you but these cookies. So here, have a cookie. And he's, he's kind to him, and he gives him a cookie, and he shows favor on, on the robber. And the robber is so blessed by that, he decides not to rob the house. And then he sings a little more of the song, and then comes another knock at the door. It's a Viking, and the Viking wants to pillage his house and steal all of his stuff and ki- kill his chickens or something. And when he comes in... He says, well, I don't have a chicken, but I have cookies. And he gives him a cookie. And he's gracious and kind to this person who has come to treat him terribly. And then he sings some more of the song. And a third knock comes to the door. And it's a little peach. And he says, hello, I'm from the IRS. And the cucumber slams the door in his face. (laughs) I saw that when I was 10 years old when that came out. And I thought it was hilarious. Even at 10, I knew the IRS is bad. We don't like to pay taxes. That is the attitude that we have towards them. But tax collectors in the ancient world were not merely a frustration. They were utterly corrupt. And as we consider the identity of these tax collectors, we're going to consider many things today. I want you to tune in because it should also help us be thankful. We don't like paying taxes now. I don't. You don't. But we should be thankful we don't live in a system as corrupt as Rome. We should be thankful that there are checks and balances, that there are percentages, that there are records, uh, that there is legal recourse on the behalf of the citizens. We should be thankful because even in today's world, in comparison with other nations, we have a very fair system of taxation in comparison. So we should not be grumbling and complaining as we often do. So our system has rules. Their system did not. Theirs was completely open to the subjection of the tax collector. Whenever the Romans would conquer a new place, what they would do is they knew if we set up a Roman citizen, a Roman individual to collect the taxes, these people are going to hate us. But if we get some of their own people to collect taxes, then they're going to hate themselves, and they won't put, put all of their ire towards us. Instead, they'll hate each other which they perceived to be a much better way to divide and conquer. These people who became tax collectors often became very wealthy because they were able to ask 
whatever they wanted, and the Romans didn't pay them a wage. The Romans expected them to pay themselves with the extra amount that they received from taxation purposes. So it was designed to be corrupt. If you could set your own salary and you were responsible to res- to get that salary from other people and you were able to legally enforce that they give it to you, most likely your sin nature would cause you to be unlawful in the way that you, you do these things, to be immoral in the way that you do these things. So here we see just a few legal examples of how the the Jewish people responded, how they viewed tax collectors. First of all, if you were a tax collector, it was illegal for you to any longer be part of a jury. You could not be a witness in court because your word was considered to be completely unvalued, unvalued and untrustworthy. The Mishnah, which is a collection of writings by the Jewish religious and political figures, they regularly lumped tax collectors together with thieves and murderers as the worst people of all. They would put them as kind of this evil trinity of, of, of horrible people. So whenever they would write, if you do this, you could be potentially treated as poorly as, and then they would list thieves, murderers, tax collectors. They are considered the worst of the worst. According to the ba- Babylonian Talmud and other Jewish writings, if tax collectors entered your house or even touched your house, your house was unclean, and you had to have it ceremonially cleansed because they were themselves considered that unclean. Just to put that in perspective, you could have a murderer touch your house or a prostitute touch your house, and it would not become ceremonially unclean. But if a tax collector does, then it is unclean. They perceived these to be the most wicked of people. If you became a tax collector, you were expelled from worshiping in the synagogue. You were no longer even able to enter into the building. You could not worship with the people of God. They perceived you to no longer be part of them because you have uh, made this unholy union with the Roman government. Tax collectors were regularly shunned by their families, and if the family refused to shun the tax collector, then the rest of the community viewed the family as complicit and evil and would treat them as detestable, anti-Jewish traitors. Consider who this is. This is Levi. His name is Levi. Levi's parents named him Levi after the tribe of Levi. The Levites were the people who were supposed to grow up and serve in the synagogue and in the temple. It's very likely that Levi's parents were religious people. It's very likely that they desired for him to grow up and serve in a religious capacity. And rather than doing so, he has become a turncoat and is no longer even allowed into the place of worship. If you're a beggar in this time, which we see many of them in the New Testament, if you're a beggar, you weren't even allowed to receive alms from a tax collector. You could not accept money from them because that money was considered tainted, was considered unusable. Tax collectors were often tied to prostitution rings and to brothels because they were under the protection of Roman law and they were able to get away with all sorts of wicked business endeavors that the average Jewish person would never even try to attempt. In the Mishnah Nedarim, which is another part of the Mishnah, the Jewish religious leaders actually declared that it was not sinful to lie to a tax collector. You could say whatever you wanted. If they asked you how much money you had, if they asked you where you were traveling, you could lie to them with absolute moral impunity. You did not have the the right by the, the law of Moses to tell the truth. That is unbelievable. I mean, you can see here that the the Jewish religious leaders uh, definitely did not have the same standards as the Old Testament had. But what we get from this is the idea that Levi was not merely a misunderstood man who was put in a a terrible predicament between a rock and a hard place, forced against his own, own will into a morally gray area. No, Levi was a sinner. He was a sinner of the worst kind. Levi was a bad person. And when we consider that Jesus walks up to him, that is a shocking thing. No one would voluntarily approach Levi. But this is the turning point in the story. Everything is going swimmingly in Jesus' ministry on this day. And then he speaks to the man that no one would ever speak to. He tells Levi these two precious and powerful words. Follow me. Follow me, Levi. And after Jesus calls him, Levi begins to go by the name Matthew. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly the reason for the change. It doesn't display the change itself. Uh, But it is consistent with other name changes in the New Testament, so it shouldn't surprise us that this occurs. But when Jesus called, Levi leaves everything. Let me read for you just uh, for a moment 
from Luke's account of this same event. This is a, a surprising thing. It shows up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But here we see in Luke chapter 5, verse 28, And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Not only did Levi get up and follow Jesus, but in doing so, he left behind everything. He left the tax booth. Imagine crossing over the GW Bridge, and there's only one lane open. That would be a terribly long wait on the bridge, but there's just one lane. You're, you're crossing over, and you need to pay the toll. And then the guy who's in the toll booth leaves. Well, guess what? Nobody's going to pay the toll. They're all just going to drive through. At this time, there were no cameras. There, there were no license plates. There was no way they could record how many people are passing by without paying taxes. Everyone who came by that day would have been happy. Hey, I don't have to pay at this toll booth. They just kept going. That would have made Herod Antipas and the Roman government very unhappy. They are losing money every minute that he is out of that tax booth. If you leave your station, you lose your job. He gets up and follows Jesus, and in doing so, he left behind everything. It was over. His old life is now gone by very nature of the fact that he has abandoned his post. Allow me to pause in the narrative for a moment and give two applications. They're going to be presented from the lesser to the greater. The lesser of them is this. Paying taxes is not evil. It is not supposed to be presented as evil in this text. We should not come to this text and say in any way, this is a license for me to stop paying taxes or stop giving to taxes. We are required by scripture to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Romans 13 informs us that every ruler has been set in place and put there by God and we are to honor him by honoring them. I know this is not a popular thing to say, but Christians, as believers, we should be very careful to pay what we owe in our taxes, to do what is right by our government. And you may say, well, I don't like what the government's doing with our taxes. I recently read an article by a Christian saying we should stop paying taxes as long as they're providing funding for things we disagree with. Well, don't you think that the early church was paying for things they disagreed with? Nero was turning Christians into torches for his dinner parties, and they were still paying their taxes. We are not simply called to give money to the government because we want them to do what we want them to do. We're called to do that because God has called us to be good citizens of our nation who obey the laws of the land. Jesus' calling of Levi is not a, an indictment of the tax system, not of that era or of this one, so pay your taxes and do so honestly. But now, a greater application is this. Have you left everything behind? If you are a Christian, if you have committed your life to Christ, have you, like Levi, left everything? Have you given it all away? Have you said, I don't want anything left from my sinful world that I inhabited before Christ? It's not easy to leave everything behind. Sometimes it will cost you a job. It can cost you your friends. It will cost you your favorite TV show, perhaps. But have you left everything behind? Are you still dabbling? Are you still holding on to it? Are you still every once in a while visiting the tax booth to see what you can get from this world? Let's leave behind the old self. Levi's radical change displays a perfect visual of what Paul is speaking about in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, when he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And he doesn't say, and, and woe is me. No, I have counted it lost. I, I, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. We see this lived out in Levi. Do we see that lived out in our own lives? This could only happen because, just as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he is a new creation. Levi has been changed from the inside out. And we're going to consider a little bit more of what that means to be a new creation as we go through the message today. But recognize what Levi recognized. Notice what he noticed. See what he saw. Jesus is worth it. It is better to have nothing and Jesus than everything this world can offer and be without Jesus. Let's move on now to the second point, which is the party. Let me read for you once again. Verses 15 and 16. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that 
he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? We're not sure, but it seems like this is the very same day that Jesus called Levi. We can't know that for certain, but it seems like no time has is really passed. So Levi calls all of his friends together from the underbelly of society, these people that he would have been affiliated with. Remember, he's not allowed to be part of the, the synagogue, and he's not allowed to really be part of their community. So the only people that he's friends with are the people that are, are similarly outcasts of society. And so he calls them together and has a party at his own home. And we know that he probably was very wealthy because this home has many people in it. You had to be wealthy to have a large home during this time. And for, for uh, that reason, we can see he was probably a very corrupt person in how many extra taxes he was collecting. So we see Jesus come to this party as a teacher. He is reclining at the table. He is seemingly at the head because he is teaching. And so if he was teaching, he's probably put in the position where he's able to communicate most uh, well to everybody who is there. So we see that this party is truly being thrown in honor of Jesus. These people who come are all of the people who would likewise be rejected by society and... uh, it's interesting because the scribes of the Pharisees show up to this meeting. They go to the house of the sinner. And we'll consider that a little bit more in a moment. But I want you to focus on one word, reclining. Jesus is reclining. Now, this is a posture that would occur during feasts, especially major religious feasts, where you would literally lay down at the table and you would, you would put your feet away from the table and your head near the table and you would lay on pillows and you'd put your hand on your uh, face in order to hold it up and you would discuss and communicate in the most relaxed position you can imagine i mean this is being comfortable and jesus is reclining at the table we see that the scribes are not reclining at the table jesus is reclining at the table i am not a shopper i don't like to shop i don't like the mall i've never liked the mall but when i grew up i grew up in a town called chanute kansas two hours away from a mall so if my family ever desired to go to kansas city or wichita or topeka or tulsa or somewhere where there was a mall we would go the two-hour drive and then i would be waiting forever for them to finish shopping because I just don't like shopping. There's nothing that I really enjoy about it. So I would go to the the store called Brookstone and I would sit in their chair that would massage you for about two hours and I would sit there and I would recline and relax. I would get comfortable. I was going to be there for a while. I, I was going to be making myself completely availed of any comfort that they would offer me. Jesus is comfortable. He is getting into a position of comfort in this place. He is not simply skirting around the outside saying, well, I'm going to get out of here. No, he is going in and recognizing he's settling in. He's going to be here for a while. He's getting comfortable and he's teaching. It's very interesting, this word reclining. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they're not reclining. It's very likely that they had their hands inside of the sleeves of their coats so that they wouldn't touch anything and become defiled by this house of the tax collector. To share a meal with someone in itself is a sign of acceptance in this community, in this ancient world. To share a meal with somebody, it's like saying, well, I accept you. We, we don't think that way. You go to McDonald's and you sit next to someone, you have no idea who they are. You don't care, right? These people would care. You would not do such a thing. And for him to sit near them, it's in their mind accepting who they are. This is why the scribes and the Pharisees are shocked. I thought you were a rabbi, Jesus. I thought you were a good teacher. What are you doing here? Why are you sitting here? Why are you reclining? Why are you comfortable around these people? Rabbis, just don't do this. Just as Jesus touched the leper and he was not infected with leprosy, Jesus goes into the midst of the sinners and is not affected by their sin. He is not overcome by the disease of sin that is on them. He is a light in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. Jesus does not love them or share this meal with them based on their performance or based on their reform. And that is good news. Most people that are here are probably going to leave this party and continue in their evil ways. Most of the people who were there probably did not repent and believe in Jesus. We don't know, but we can say if we were to look over the large scheme of Jesus' ministry, it's very unlikely that the majority of these people who were invited to the party repented and believed and honored God with the rest of their lives. However, Jesus goes into the midst of the sinners and he reclines at the table with them and he lovingly shares a meal with them and he commands repentance. Do you see the love of God clearly displayed in the actions of Jesus? Do you see God's love here? Yesterday, my wife and I went to a bakery. 
and we got donuts at this some kind of vegan bakery. It wasn't it wasn't really great. Uh, I I didn't really like it, but uh, but it was an experience. And and when we went there, there was a person who served us who was clearly displaying sin. I mean, blatantly sinful person. And I just I couldn't wait to get out of there. I, I wanted to leave. And when we did, uh, I mentioned something about the server to my wife, and she said, I don't remember her exact words, but something to the extent of, he's a sinner. And over the day, as I was preparing the sermon last night and throughout the evening, I was convicted by that over and over, and I thought about it throughout, throughout the evening, that I am not like Christ in this way. I was holding this person to standards other than the gospel. I was rejecting this person not because... Uh, that he has rejected Christ, even though he has rejected Christ, I'm rejecting him because of his actions. And I wanted nothing to do with him. Jesus goes into the midst of the wolves. He goes into the crowd of thieves, and he begins to present love to them and share love to them. I am not like Jesus in this way. And I'm not telling you to excuse sin, because we should not excuse sin. We should call sin what it is. But love first and call to repentance By calling someone to repentance, we are loving them, but we must show love to them. Let's consider this a little bit more thoroughly. By having this party, Levi throws at his own home and declaring allegiance to Jesus, Levi is in the process of doing something which every Christian should do at the time they become a believer. And that is declaring to their old world, their old society, their old group of friends, this is who I am now. This is who I follow now. And as Levi throws this party, consider what's going to happen. All of these old friends are going to have to either change their mind and change their lives and follow Jesus, or they are going to have to no longer be friends and colleagues with Levi. Those are the only options. And so Levi is putting a uh, a fork in the road and saying, you take one path or the other by his actions. And Christians, if you have not done this with your friends the world that you were with before you became a believer, I encourage you to do so. Let them know, stand with Christ. I am with him. I am a follower of Jesus. And let them know that they need to be a believer in Jesus Christ as well. I'm not saying to purposefully push people away, but if you begin to proclaim your allegiance to Jesus, those people who do not proclaim allegiance to Jesus will not stick with you. If you are like Levi, you will do this. If you recognize the value of Jesus Christ, you will do this. Let your friends, let your family, let your co-workers, let your colleagues know who you are. Let them know your identity in Jesus. And I want you to also notice that this is done in a controlled manner. There's some misunderstandings about evangelism that people can draw from this text. And I've, I've heard it done where people would say, well, we should be like Jesus. And we should feel comfortable just going to the bar And having a few drinks with a guy and sharing the gospel with them. Oh, you know, you have a whiskey and I'll have a shot or two and and we'll talk. Well, that's not what's going on here at all. This is a controlled environment in the home of Levi, a Jesus follower, where they invite believers in. This is not done foolishly. It is done wisely where the people in control of the conversation are the people who are going to be controlling the conversation with the good news about Jesus. Jesus is the one who is teaching. This is his territory now. So we need to be very careful about the way we read this in terms of evangelism. You should make sure that you do display your allegiance to Christ, but don't think that you can go and and spend time in places of the world over and over and over and not be affected by the world. We are not Christ. We are not imperfect. We are not uh, unable to be uh, lured by the temptation of sin. So guard yourselves, even in this, the way that we evangelize. Be wise about where you go and how you speak, but always seek to love the lost and call them to repentance. To those of you who are here today that you don't believe in Jesus Christ, that you are here today and you you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to know that Jesus made the first move. God sent his son. That's what Christmas is all about. He sent his son from heaven to earth to die. He was born for the purpose of going to the cross and carrying the sin of people like you and me So that he could pay for it. A payment that we could not make. And even if we could, we wouldn't want to make. He died in our place, on our behalf. God sent his only son so that Christ could die for us. This is good news. And he has made this move. He has died for your sins. So if you are part of this group, if you are like Levi, still at the tax booth, come to Jesus. 
Perhaps Jesus is calling you today and saying, follow me. If you hear him calling you, you will follow him. Follow Jesus just as Levi did. Don't wait to get your life right first because you can't. RGF, our church, Redeeming Grace Fellowship, we are not merely proclaiming moral reform. We're not here today to tell you just to be better, just to improve, just to stop doing bad things. No, that is not what Jesus taught. You should, do the, you should stop doing bad things. You should stop being an immoral person. But you can't without the power of Christ. Repent and believe in the gospel and God will change your heart. It is then that you will be a new creation in Christ. The old will pass away and behold the new will come. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, follow him. Let's move now to the last portion of our message today, which is the Pharisees. Let me read for you once again verses 16 and 17. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now these are not actually the Pharisees. I just needed another P to complete the alliteration. These are the scribes of the Pharisees. These are the people that uh, would have been studying. Um, but when it says scribes of the Pharisees, let me explain what that means very quickly. The Pharisees were the religious ruling uh, party who believed in the Old Testament thoroughly. They believed in the existence of eternity and heaven and hell. They believed very, very adamantly in spiritual realities and in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in these things. And so the scribes of the Pharisees represent those people who most honored the Old Testament and most studied it. And unlike the Sadducees, they would have studied and read all of the prophets, not just the Torah. They would have recognized all of the Old Testament as valuable and God-given. So these scribes of the Pharisees, they know the Old Testament very well. But I want you to see something very important, and that is that these people are religious but they don't trust in God. Now, there's a very helpful book called uh, uh, City Church uh, by Tim Keller. And this it's a very helpful book in under understanding this thought. Is that there's two problems. You have religious people and you have irreligious people. And then you have the gospel. And religion doesn't save you. And irreligion doesn't save you. The gospel is what saves you. And these people today are the ones we're focusing on. We're not talking today about irreligious people, about atheists, about people who reject God's existence in its entirety. Today we're focusing on people who admit that God exists, that may even admit Jesus Christ is a historical person, that may even say Jesus died on the cross, and they may even know intellectually that he died on the cross for sin. And these people may even go to church on a regular basis. These people may do things that they consider sacramental. They may do things that they consider righteous before God. And that is the very problem. Let me define some terms here about what's going on. Specifically, we're going to consider religion in terms of self-righteousness and legalism. So what is religion itself? Religion is an ideology, any ideology that shapes one's lifestyle based upon your beliefs about God. That's what religion is. Everyone has a religion. Even if you reject the existence of God, that in and of itself is a religion. It's because it is the way you shape your lifestyle based on your belief about God. Secondly, we consider self-righteousness. What does it mean to be self-righteous? It's the belief that one is right before God based upon their own merit, which is a result of their own actions. So you believe, perhaps, I don't need forgiveness from God because I'm a good person. Look what I've done. And then you begin to list your accomplishments or your goodness. Finally, let's consider legalism, which is seeking to gain the favor of God by anything other than the blood of Jesus Christ. You think that you can appease God's wrath? You think that you can make God love you more by your actions? That is legalism. And the problem with these scribes is that they are basing their entire standing with God on a standard which is not God's standard. God has a perfect righteousness, and you must be perfectly righteous. Consider the words of John MacArthur on this issue. He says, their righteousness, it was not the result of transformation of the heart by God, but rather was an external hypocritical righteousness consisting of nothing more than rule-keeping, judgmentalism, and outward show. Interestingly enough, that describes many people who call themselves Christians. There's not an inward change. 
There's not a love for Jesus Christ that draws them to do what he tells them to do. Rather, there is a rigid system of legalism in place by which they believe they are becoming more loved by God. So when these scribes ask, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus comes back with a perfect, perfect response, unbeatable response. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the clearest, most obvious thing anybody could ever say. Why would you go to the doctor? Why would you go to the hospital if you're a healthy human being? What are you doing there? You don't need a doctor. No, the doctor is the one who goes to the sick. The key to understanding this is something that I mentioned way back at the beginning of our sermon today, though. And that is that at the core of Jesus' teaching, the core tenet of his message was repentance. He declared that you need to repent. And repentance is simply a change of mind and actions about sin. It's turning and being different in relation to the way that you live. And these scribes did not see themselves as sinful. They did not see themselves as wicked. Therefore, Jesus is using their own logic against them. Well, if you're so righteous, if you're so perfect, why do I need to go to you? If you are the righteous ones, why do I need to teach you? If you already know everything, why do I need to explain it to you? If you already live perfectly, why do I need to tell you to live righteous lives? Also, Jesus is teaching the wicked and sinful element of the community. And what is being clearly displayed in the attitude of these scribes is they don't want these people to be right with God. They don't want the wicked people to be forgiven. They don't want them to be made righteous. Jesus' statement is very true. He did not come for the healthy But now let's spend the rest of the sermon at the doctor's office, known as the Bible, and let's diagnose the scribes and diagnose ourselves. What we're about to do is a short Bible study on total depravity, and that is the doctrine that teaches that all men, that every one of us, every person in this room, and every person that has ever lived other than Jesus Christ, as a consequence of the fall, are born morally corrupt, enslaved to sin, as the scripture teaches. We are at enmity with God and unable to please him or even of themselves turn to Christ for salvation. Today we're going to consider the scripture and consider these doctrines and say to the Pharisees, are you really healthy? And as we are doing so, say to ourselves, are we really healthy? So keep those two things in mind. Let's consider this in a logical pattern here. Let's start with this. Is man basically good or evil? Not in our own opinions, not according to modern philosophy, but according to the scripture. Is man basically, at its root, good or evil? Romans chapter 5, verses 12, and then I'll mention verse 19 as well, says this. Sin came in the world into the world through one man, and death through sin. So death spread to all, because all sinned. By the one man's disobedience, the many, speaking of us, were made sinners. Adam sinned, and therefore everyone who was born from Adam is sinful. So let me ask the next question. Are there any exceptions to this? Is there any one of us who could possibly escape this reality? Consider three verses, and you'll know them, so I'll mention them very quickly. First, Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53.6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Second Chronicles 6.36 sums it up. It's the nail in the coffin. There is no one who does not sin. You just don't get more clear than that. That does include every one of us. What about deep down, buried under the sinful exterior? Is there some portion of us that is redeemable? Some part of us that is righteous still? Some part that has not been infected by sin? Well, consider what Mark chapter 7 says when Jesus speaks about the very inward parts of man. He says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. That's where they come from. And they defile a person. If we want to believe, if we want to know what the deepest parts of us are like, Jesus is displaying it. The parts of you that you can't even tell are in existence. Jesus is telling us right now what they are. So let's consider how the Bible specifically approaches each element of a person. Maybe you can say, well, Jesus wasn't referring to every part of a a human being. Let's consider your heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, Your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. 
Who can understand it? Your heart is infected with sin. What about our mind? Titus chapter 1 verses 15 and 16 says, To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Everyone who does not believe in Jesus Christ, their mind and conscience is defiled. And that, at some point in their life, is every single person. We are infected. What about our will? The Bible references many times that we are slaves to sin. And that's not speaking about us being slaves in a, in a physical form, obviously. It's a moral will that we have. We desire to do what is wrong. John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus answers them and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, it says, They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, which by the way is sin, to that he is enslaved. We are slaves to sin in our will. What about our affections and dire desires? Maybe even though all of this is still messed up and defiled, maybe we still really want to be righteous before God. What does the Bible say about that? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. What are the body and the mind? We've already considered that. Those things are completely infected with sin. And we were by very nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We can sum all of this up in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, which says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. In other words, you are worse than you think you are. I am worse than I think I am. I have no ability to recognize how deeply flawed I am. We have never encountered a perfect person. We compare ourselves to imperfect standards. We have no idea how bad we are. The only one who sees me as I really am is God. And I'm thankful for the grace that God has, that he doesn't immediately show us how wicked we are. Because if he did, we would be crushed under the weight of it. Consider the words of John Newton in the great hymn, Great God from Thee, as we consider the reality that God knows everything about you. He knows the wickedness of your heart. He knows the wickedness of these scribes. And he is standing there, and he is or laying there, really reclining, and he is teaching them. And as he's doing so, consider the fact that everyone in that room, except for Jesus, is on an equal playing field. They are all desperately wicked. They're all completely infected with sin. And Jesus says these words, I have not come for the, for the healthy, but for the sick. Consider these words from John Newton. Great God, from thee there is not concealed. There's nothing concealed. Thou seest my inward frame. You know everything. To thee I always stand revealed exactly as I am. And that's terrifying. That's a terrifying reality. Since I can hardly therefore bear what in myself I see, how vile and dark I must appear, most holy God, to thee. But since my Savior stands between in garments dyed in blood, tis he instead of me is seen when I approach to God. Thus, through a sin, though a sinner, I am safe. He pleads before the throne. His life and death in my behalf and calls my sins his own. What wondrous love. What mysteries in this appointed shine. My breaches of the law are his, and his obedience is mine. You see, Jesus sees our guilt. He knows our guilt. He was in that room looking at those individuals, knowing everything that they had ever done. The sinners that were aware that they were sinners, however, were in a much safer place than those who did not. Because those who know they are sinners are able to see that they need to repent. If you're here today and you are like the scribes and the Pharisees, and you think you have no need of repentance because you are righteous, then you have a very low view of God. You have a very low view of His standards. Begin to read the Scripture and see what He requires. His requirement is absolute perfection, and one sin on your record is enough to condemn you for eternity. And you might say you're better than the next person, but you are not living up to God's standards. So perhaps you're in that place, recognize that you are in the, you're, you're not a scribe, you're, you, you are not perfect, you are not Jesus, you are not without sin. You are just like the tax collectors in this room. 
You are completely viled before God by sin. He knows you personally. Yet Jesus Christ died for people that he knew personally. He knew our sin personally for all who would believe because he carried that sin to the cross and he paid for it. If you do not know Christ, see yourself for who you are. Recognize that you need Jesus and come to the end of yourself and believe that Jesus died for you and be saved. If you're here today and you do believe in Jesus, this is great news. But we need to be very cautious that we don't slide over into the standpoint uh, of these scribes. That we don't start out by recognizing the vile nature of who we are before God and thankful for Him, for His righteousness being imputed to us, and then all of a sudden become like the scribes. Uh, recently I saw, once again, the uh, Peanuts Christmas special. Um, Merry Christmas, Charlie Brown. I, don't, I think that's the name of it. And you've probably all seen that. My favorite line in the movie is, is, um, is from Sally, the little sister. And she says, about Santa Claus, she says, I just want what's coming to me. I want what's mine. That's a terrible thing to ask. We don't want what's coming to us. We want what Christ has graciously given to us. So if you are here today and you are in Christ, we need to have a gracious view to the lost. We need to have a loving view to the lost. We need to be remembering constantly the fact that we are not righteous before God without the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we are constantly amazed. We are amazed that you know us, yet you love us. That even as today, as, as I was speaking, I was remembering, Lord, my sin. That I am, I am not righteous before you, but Lord, you have made me righteous through the death and burial and resurrection of your son. That he bore all of my sins on the tree and paid for them. Father, I pray for all of us in this room who know you. Cause us to love others when we consider this truth. Cause us to love you more when we consider this truth. Father, for those who are here that do not believe, once again I ask, Father, break their hearts. Open their eyes to understand who you are. Let them see your perfection and be humbled and, and be completely emptied of themselves, Lord. Cause them to come to the end of themselves and believe in you for salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.